Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I've been better. Yet again, our show has been beset by COVID infection. Apparently, I, I, I was in Israel last week. I went on, I went on birthright on, on what we call geriatric birthright. There's a special age group because of the pandemic. So my wife and I went on birthright together, which was fantastic, except also half of the people in the group now have COVID, including myself. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing this show, you know, not, not, not a hundred percent capacity, but I'm, I'm dedicated to serving our fans content. I, I was in the, the other week I took a vacation to Hawaii and I did not get COVID in Hawaii. It was great. That's good. Yeah. I, it's, that's, we were, we were highly, highly recommend, highly recommend. You would recommend, you'd recommend going to Hawaii and not getting COVID versus going to Israel and getting COVID. I mean, yeah, you know, you know. One one trip has only positives. The other the other has a positive and a negative. Therefore, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I well I'm 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 going to go ahead and take that take that as a as an opportunity for a very blunt segue. Speaking speaking of uh, positives and negatives, need the uh, need to balance trade offs. The need to balance trade offs. Yeah. Yes. That. <laughs> what are we interested in this week? Today we're going to be talking about kind of. Uh, Transgender issues and the American civil rights state. We've already done an episode on trans issues in the UK and how UK laws kind of created some problems on the transgender front. But today we're going to be talking about basically how a series of piecemeal judicial decisions ended up and also kind of civil rights regulations ended up affecting affecting how, how schools and other institutions now are effectively required to treat transgender students and how they are required to treat the entire concept of gender and sex. Obviously, recently, the Biden administration released these proposed Title IX regulations that are going to essentially require schools to treat students consistent with their gender identity, even in contexts that where that may be controversial, like in locker rooms. But the bigger thrust for our discussion, right, is that, yeah, there were a lot of jokes people were making about gender identity like three years ago that are now reality. It's no longer a joke. And so the real question is sort of how did this happen sort of so stealthily and quickly? So Char Charles, Charles, what's your take on all this? Yeah, I mean, you know, to to me, I think we, we this is like the third episode. This will be like the third or fourth episode that we've done recently on sex, gender, ideology, et cetera. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a pressing contemporary issue. There's lots of different angles on it. But what I want to talk to our guests about in particular is, you know, we on this show talk a lot about the way in which institutions, laws, norms, structure, create culture. And this is really the forefront of this process playing out in what was 10 years ago, even three years ago, a totally unthinkable space, a totally unthinkable way whether it be Biden administration's Title IX guidance or it be the Bostock case coming out of the Supreme Court a few years ago. This has been some pretty dramatic changes, and I'm interested in sort of how the mechanisms that we talk about are operating sort of in real time and how our, how our guest thinks about that. What are, you, what are you looking to get out of today's conversation? Right. Well, well, so part of what I find very useful about our guest's work is he, he shows how often academics, courts, government agencies, a lot of the institutions pushing the more radical gender stuff end up kind of laundering responsibility for it. They'll cite each other in a kind of circular way. You know, academic one will publish a bullshit statistic. Academic two will cite academic one, then academic three cites academic two. And so you get this kind of entire body of expertise and judicial opinion that's largely built, at least in some cases, on on a house of cards. And to me, what's what's striking is not just that some of the consensus is, you know, built on shaky foundations. That's sort of to be expected. But it's that it seems like every agent there's there's simultaneously this this push to really inject the most radical redefinition of sex and gender in sort of every aspect of life. And simultaneously, a, a very strong incentive, it seems, for all these institutions to 
kind of deny that that's what they're doing, right? Like the Title IX people will say, oh, we're not doing anything new. We're just clarifying what's already in the law, which of course is bullshit. But, you know, it, it's interesting to see that kind of both the, the, the material effective maximalism of the kind of, you know, bureaucratic crusade uh, on behalf of this new ideology and this sort of very striking timidity where institutions don't actually want to say that that's what they're doing and devise all these mechanisms to kind of obfuscate their own agency and responsibility. So yeah, with that, Charles, why don't you introduce our guest? As always, as always, lightweight stuff. Our guest is well positioned to answer some of these questions. Leo Sapir is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's one of my colleagues. He holds a PhD in political science from Boston College and previously completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the Program on Constitutional Government at Harvard University. Lior, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we like to we like to open with sort of a, a provocative question, and I think Aaron Aaron sort of lay out lay out this interesting cycle of the way the state builds on itself, or sort of the institution builds on itself, reinforces itself while denying its own existence. I think you see this phenomenon in lots of identity based rulemaking. You see it in in race, for example. So I guess, but like the the big question big question for me is like. Why is the is the submerged state like pushing forward on trans of all issues? Like what's what's the goal with with line, with Bostock, with right of court rulings? Like why is this new frontier been opened? What's the agenda? Yeah, that's a great question, Charles. I think I would start by suggesting that your question assumes a certain degree of conscientiousness or agency. Or, or even planning, I would dare say, if we're kind of thinking about it from an institutionalist regulatory perspective, that I'm not sure is there. I'm not sure was ever there. I think the, the story of the transgender revolution, American law and public policy is very much a story of incrementalism, of institutions doing things that they thought were connected to previous policy commitments that, in other words, stumbling into a new area of policy without quite understanding that that's what was going on. To be sure, there were, there are examples I have in mind, you know, the Office for Civil Rights under the Obama administration that were consciously obfuscating their innovations. But I think for the most part, this is really a story of what one political scientist once called muddling through of trying to, man trying to manage the everyday realities of a messy social life and coming at policy prescriptions that amount to a conscious public policy, but did not, were not born that way. So I guess I would say that there is kind of three things that we should be attentive to when thinking about the trans revolution in the United States. Number one, and this I'm sure is a point that's going to resonate with the two of you and with your listeners, institutions are really important here. I, you know, one of the things that I try to do in my writing and, and speaking is push back against a, a very powerful narrative, both on the left and the right, that all of this is just downstream from culture, right? So you get this, for example, you get people saying this is gender ideology. And we can, we can, and I think should get into it a little later of why I don't think that that's an accurate description of what's going on here. But I think a lot of the ideas that are circulating out there about human nature, sex, gender, identity, subjectivity, all these kinds of things are in some sense residual. They're byproducts of our institutional pathologies. So that's number one. Number two, uh, as I said in the first few remarks that I made, this really is a story of incrementalism, of a regulatory state inching into new territory, not necessarily knowing what it's doing. And I think it's that's important, number one, because we should not attribute you know, conscious purposes where they don't exist, but number two, to the extent that we also want to undo some of the excessive policies, it's really important to understand how they came about in the first place. So for example, if, if Title IX policies requiring schools to defer to student self-identification grew out of anti-bullying initiatives, which is what happened, which themselves grew out of a new interpretation of what sexual harassment means, then that might be the key to unraveling some of the, the excesses of these policies. And then number three, I think very important to emphasize that policies are not just the result of politics. In other words, it's not just that you have, you know, Democrats and Republicans each proposing various ideas about civil rights, sex and gender, justice, and that policies just result from whoever wins out in the political sphere. To some extent, policies themselves create new political alignments, new political commitments. So for example, 
In 2014, you would not have found the full-throated commitment that you see today in the Democratic Party to the idea of transgender identity as a normal, legitimate, even valuable aspect of the human person. That emerged piecemeal over time through Democrats' efforts to defend regulatory actions that had been put in place previously for reasons that may have nothing to do with identity. For example, trying to address bullying or trying to, to help students access a medical treatment protocol that federal judges were being told is, is, is necessary. So th that's kind of just by way of introduction. I think those three points are, are very important to keep in mind. Well, that's, that's a lot, and we'll get into all of it. But I think, you know, to start, you mentioned this anti-bullying thing. And to my mind, that, that is one of the clearest examples of how what seems like a very modest, incremental and frankly, just inoffensive step can then have all sorts of crazy knock-on effects. Can you just describe, kind of give us an overview of how what is now being described as a very radical gender policy in Title IX, how that policy from the Biden administration grew out of the anti-bullying Dear Colleague letter? Sure, sure. So it's a very yeah. long and complicated story. So I'll try to summarize it from a 30,000 foot perspective, going into some of the details. Look, I mean, it, it's it's a big question where to, where, you know, where to trace the beginning here. I think a plausible starting point is the emergence of smartphones and social media and their, their accessibility to teenagers. Because what that did, and we're talking about the, the late 2000s, right? What that did was essentially open up a new vista for students to harass one another, bully each other in, in verbal ways, gang up on each other, and really destroy each other's self-esteem and confidence in ways that I think educators and parents had never, had never experienced. Mm -hmm. And schools, for obvious technological reasons, schools just simply did not have the capacity to deal with this. And it was taking a real toll on the classroom, on education. And so in 2010, the Obama White House convenes a conference on anti-bullying led by Dunkey, Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education back then. And the point of this conference was to try to figure out, you know, in light of these new realities, what can be done by way of federal response. And I should say one of the very important roadblocks was the fact that the Supreme Court had issued rulings on student speech, on First Amendment rights. Why is that relevant? Because when you're dealing with non-violent, non-physical bullying, by definition, you're dealing with speech. And there's always going to be this gray area where offensive speech that is technically bullying is also protected under the First Amendment. So what the Office for Civil Rights and the Department of Education did very cleverly was to say, yes, there are all these protections for speech. Yes, the Supreme Court has said that, you know, we cannot use civil rights laws as a general civility code. I think that was Antonin Scalia's phrase. But there are instances of bullying that rise to the level of sexual harassment. You know, that's a very odd phrase. Bullying that rises to the level of harassment. Usually we would think that it's the opposite the way around. But the reason why this made sense is because if certain kinds of bullying, namely bullying based on federally protected traits, if certain kinds of bullying are can be envisioned under the Civil Rights Code, then there can be a federal response. And so that became kind of the legal basis, the legal justification for pressuring and eventually coercing schools into undertaking far-reaching measures to police the speech of students on pretty much anything related to sex, sexuality, and gender. Now, in the context of this new regulatory regime that was announced in a Dear Colleague letter at the end of 2010 and then again in 2011, the Office for Civil Rights launched a number of investigations of school districts where mostly gay, but in a couple of cases also transgender students were being harassed. And it found a number of interesting things in these investigations. I think the most important of them was that these students were being denied access to the restrooms that they wanted to use. And what the Office for Civil Rights found was that the effect of that policy, the effect, the psychological effect of denying them access to those restrooms was the same as the effect of being bullied by their peers. And so OCR started to think about the, the, the restroom question as an extension of bullying, where, bully, where bullying is defined as feeling unwelcome at school. And so in the context of these investigations, it reached 
consent decrees with schools whereby they agreed to allow these, these students access to their desired restrooms in exchange for OCR backing down. Now, let me just put in parentheses, you know, you, you could ask, why didn't schools push back? Why didn't they say, look, there's no precedent for this in, in federal case law. This runs counter to what the Supreme Court has said. You know, OCR is just going off on a limb here. Let's just fight this in court. The answer is because when you're dealing with a civil rights issue and you, it has the backing of the president of the United States and most of the kind of left of center media outlets, no school district wants to go on record as being, quote unquote, against civil rights. You add to that the fact that these investigations are themselves often the punishment, right? The process is the punishment. And that creates very powerful incentives for schools to settle, to settle investigations, even when they're not technically legally in the wrong. And so uh, what these settlements did was create a new kind of regulatory regime in which in order to be on the sunny side of OCR, schools agreed to do things like, you know, contract out with LGBT advocacy groups, which by this point were, had already been started to be captured by, by trans advocacy and have them really kind of dictate their internal policies and culture. And that became a model for change. So, so that's the origins of, of this. That's where this begins in this kind of murky effort quasi-legal, arguably unconstitutional efforts to address bullying in schools that, that very quickly grew into the bathroom question. Now I can continue, but maybe I'll-, I'll Yeah, stop. well, no, just one thing, I think Charles has a question, but before that, I, I just want to flag something, which is this is all happening, this is all justified in the name of Title IX, right? Yes. And Title IX, it's worth emphasizing references sex. It's about it's schools can't discriminate based on sex, right? And so I think that's another thing to just bear in mind, right? That, that the whole, that the kind of legal tool that, that gets used in all of this says sex and not gender. And that kind of is going to end up affecting how courts and OCR have to kind of conceptualize bullying based on gender identity. They have to sort of treat it as a kind of sex discrimination, which then I will get to this in a minute, you know, kind of creates a, a pressure to start blurring the boundaries between gender and sex and the way that yes. these things are even defined as a legal matter. Right. 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 Okay. That's a very good point, Aaron. And we can get it a little bit into the legal weeds here, but I would say just kind of looking back at the case law, even from the vantage point of 2011, let's say, you know, courts by this point had already basically come to the conclusion that sex and gender are just interchangeable terms, that wherever the law speaks of one, it ipso facto speaks of the other, that sex discrimination is gender discrimination. There's no real distinction between them. But also because of a case from 1989 called Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins, where the Supreme Court said it was a Title VII case, not Title IX, so employment. But the Supreme Court basically said when Congress passed a law to prohibit discrimination because of sex, it meant sexual stereotypes as well. And of course, if sex means gender, then that means gender stereotypes as well. And this legal theory about stereotyping is extremely important for understanding the trans revolution in American law and institutions. Number one, because within a couple decades, in the context of employment discrimination cases, so Title VII, and even at one point, even the Equal Protection Clause, the federal courts said, up until now, courts have not recognized transgender plaintiffs as eligible for protection under Title VII. But from now on, we do recognize that. And why do we recognize that? So this is a ruling that came out of the Sixth Circuit, because a transgender woman is really a man who doesn't conform to stereotypes associated with male appearance and behavior. Mm -hmm. So notice what's going on here, right? You have a federal court using the anti-stereotyping doctrine in federal law to shoehorn protections for transsexual plaintiffs into federal law, but on the theory that, that, that trans women are really men, right? That biological right. effect is real. It's the fundamental basis of the analysis. What later ends up happening is that courts take these few cases, these few federal cases, they abstract away from the legal reasoning they ignore kind of the, 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 the factual assumptions, the empirical assumptions about what sex and gender really mean. And they just say, courts in the past have ruled in favor of transgender, transsexual plaintiffs under Title VII. They've also said that Title VII and Title IX are harmonious civil rights statutes. Therefore, 
Right. Title IX, students who identify as transgender are eligible to use the bathrooms of their choice because sex means gender identity. Well, and, and obviously what's funny is that the, the, the argument is, oh, well, they're not really the, gen- the, the thing that they say they are. And, and that's why that's how they get the stereotyping. So, so the whole theory is premised on kind of actually a negation of the, the student's self declared identity and this is this is also in a certain sense this is what happens in bostock over our listeners right happens in the supreme court's case about transgender identity as neil gorsuch writes for the liberal it's neil gorsuch and the liberals john roberts neil gorsuch and the liberals (laughs) saying no actually discriminating on the basis of gender identity is discrimination on the basis of sex identity because if this were be for exactly the reason it's laid out yeah i mean so 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 what are the what are the sort of what's the sort of impact of that analysis with this sort of like you know the the the, the, the courts sort of half grant this premise. They don't all the, both federal federal courts and the the appellate courts, Supreme Court half grant the premise of transgender theories. What is the impact of the court's actions on on the ex- acceptance of transness transgenderism into in in law? Yeah, good question. So let me let me say a word about Bostock, and then I'm going to go go back and pick up where I left off from the from the regulatory story. Bostock decided in June 2020. Forgive me if I'm mischaracterizing what you just said, Charles. But actually, what Gorsuch said in that opinion is the outcome of this case does not depend on whether we, the court, define sex in a conventional way or to mean gender identity. And in fact, you know, using what he called an original. What's the exact phrase that he used? Original public meaning. So kind of a textualist approach. Using that approach, he said, we're willing to assume the conventional meaning, physical anatomical definition of sex, and even then the plaintiffs win. And in fact, Gorsuch went out of his way to say, to emphasize that the outcome of this case, the ruling here does not determine in any way, shape, or form these ongoing debates over restrooms, sports teams. In other words, any aspect of life where the definition of sex really does matter. But of course, yeah, this is hardly typical, hardly unique to, to, to this particular area of regulation. But, you know, the court, having said that, immediately entrepreneurial lawyers on the left, civil rights advocates, members of the Democratic Party, and most importantly, lower court judges completely ignored all of that and just said, yes, yes, great. Bostock says sex means gender identity. Now we have the Supreme Court basically requiring us to redefine sex to mean a person's subjective sense of self which the Supreme Court most certainly did not. So it's one thing what the Supreme Court actually says on a particular issue. It's another thing what the influence of that decision is on policymakers at a variety of state and federal, in a variety of state and federal bureaucracies. And now the Biden administration's new proposed Title IX rules explicitly cited Bostock, basically trying to say, we're just implementing what the Supreme Court has required, is requiring of us, right? Uh, you know, if you look at what's going to go on in the, rec- in the notice and comment process uh, under Title IX, anybody who's paying attention to the legal developments is going to obviously point out that that's not the case. If the new Title IX regulations ever end up in court, which they almost certainly will, it just remains to be seen what the courts will do. I, I think eventually this is going to make its way back up to the Supreme Court. And then it will be very interesting to see how the conservative majority tries to square the Biden administration's Title IX regulations with, with Bostock. Okay, so that's Bostock. But just getting back to our story, then during the second term of the Obama administration, you have this very kind of curious process that my dissertation advisor at Boston College, Shep Melnick, has called institutional leapfrogging. Which basically means that, you know, the Office for Civil Rights and the federal courts are constantly taking steps each beyond the other to expand the reach of a, of a, regu- a regulatory regime while denying that they're doing anything new. And of course, this raises not just a problem of kind of small C constitutionalism of good governance and things of, 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 of constitutional government, but it also raises a problem of good governance. The reason why we have these small C constitutional protections, a separation of powers and things like that, is precisely because without them, we're likely to get bad policies, oppressive policies, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's another way to ensure that that doesn't happen. And, and here you have the Office for Civil Rights and the federal courts basically ignoring those separation of, that separation of powers and using each other at, um, in order to uh, conceal their own innovations. And what that ended up resulting in is a new policy regime that has not only no official justification, but where the policymakers who participated in it have not really thought through the consequences of their actions. 
you know, if you look at some of these court cases and OCR decrees coming out of the second term of the Obama administration, there's practically nothing in there about, let's say, pediatric gender medicine, about what the consequence of school policies that, quote unquote, affirm students might be on their mental health, on their, on their transition, success, all these kinds of questions that are now kind of front and center. So what happens is that in 2014, a, a school district in Gloucester County, Virginia, the school board there resolves to not allow a transgender student, a female who identifies as male, to use the, the boys' bathroom. Among other things, the school board was worried that by doing this, it would kind of create a free-for-all where boys would identify as girls and you know teenage boys being who they, who they are would abuse the policy to, to take a peek at the girls, to harass them, and so on and so forth. So this gets becomes a national civil rights story. The ACLU becomes involved, and a very clever local attorney who calls herself the sworn knight of the, sexual, of the transsexual empire on Twitter. This is her Twitter hint, something like that. She writes a letter to the Department of Education saying, hey, you know, there's this ongoing controversy in Gloucester County. What's your position here? Now, of course, she's not stupid. She knows that. Oh, and by the way, she says at the end of her letter to, to the Department of Education, she says, I'm, I'll be sharing your response with my acquaintances at NPR, BuzzFeed, and Metro Weekly, which is a DC-based LGBT advocacy newspaper. Now, of course, you know, the Obama administration during these years, it was engaged in trying to rebuild the Democratic coalition on the younger, more kind of feminine, socially progressive basis, moving away from the old New Deal coalition of the working class. And so, it, you know, nobody in the Obama administration wanted to be embarrassed in this way. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, a response comes from a mid-level bureaucrat in the Department of Education, a kind of somebody that nobody knows, who says, look, it's my understanding, this is a private email center, it's my understanding, he says, that you know, federal law requires that schools treat students in accordance with their gender identity. And if you look at the citations from the letter, not a single one of them, not one, actually comes to that conclusion. The only thing that comes remotely close is his citations of OCR's own investigations of the schools in the anti-bullying context, which, as I've already said, have no legal foundation whatsoever. So this, this letter then becomes the subject of an ongoing lawsuit in Gloucester County. And to make a complicated story short, the ACLU wanted what's called a de novo ruling out of the federal courts, meaning it wanted it to reinterpret Title IX so that you know, students could identify as they pleased. The United States government intervened on behalf of the plaintiff, and the, the, fed, the district court said, no, sorry, the only reason why we separate bathrooms by sex is because of privacy that's related to anatomy, so that's, you know, it's, your, your interpretation is not going to stand. But then the appeals court, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2016, defers to the letter of, to, to, the, to the Department of Education's interpretation of its own supposedly ambiguous regulations on this kind of obscure administrative law theory that the vast 99% of citizens don't even know, let alone understand. And then the Office for Civil Rights in May of 2016 comes out with its notorious and ill-fated Dear Colleague letter, where it basically says, from now on, all schools receiving federal funds as a of receiving federal funds under Title IX must treat students in accordance with their gender, gender identity. Otherwise, they'll be engaged in uh, impermissible stereotyping. And of course, the only court case it could cite in support of this legal conclusion was the very federal court ruling that had just deferred to OCR itself, which itself had misinterpreted previous court rulings. So you see how there's kind of a, a yeah. element here where every institution says we're just following the other, you have a brand new regulatory regime that nobody thought out, nobody has given any thought to the consequences of, and nobody takes responsibility for. So I wanna, I wanna sort of telescope out, zoom out just a little bit from the, from the nitty gritty details, but talking of this dynamic, I mean, it's almost like, it's sort of like the, 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 the perverse mirror of the common law process, right? The principle of common law is that law is discovered. Like it's not a thing, it's not a thing that we invent, it's like a thing that we are uncover over time. What you're describing here is this process by which administrative agencies and the judiciary jointly discover the meaning of their own texts or, you know, they, they, they're they taking ambiguities in law. They go, well, this could actually refer to this. No, but, it, you know, it, 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 it seems to operate in a similar, although distinct way. So I wonder, I wonder sort of, sort of, do you see, 
this process seems to be com- common across lots of different civil rights causes. Do you see that? Do you see it showing up in other places? And like, what 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 should we make of the genesis of this process? Like, is it just built in? Is this just like how government works? Is this like how government twenty first century America works? Like, where does the leapfrogging come from? Is there yeah. a way to it? There are certainly other examples of of leapfrogging. I would just mention the other two regulatory areas under Title IX itself, by which I mean athletics and sexual harassment. Those two developed over time through institutional leapfrogging. Again, the, the book to read on this is really Shepnonik's The Transformation of Title IX. I mean, he really gets into it in, in minute detail there. The chapter on, on the transgender issue is, is much, much shorter. It doesn't have a lot of details just because he wrote it while this stuff was still going on. But the chapters, the sections on athletics and, and sexual harassment are very rich and describe in detail how leapfrogging has went on in those cases. Regarding other areas of regulation, you know, off the top of my head, nothing comes to mind. You know, there's certainly maybe one important thing to just mention in this regard is the recent EPA case that the Supreme Court just handed down, where it basically said, you know, enough of this business of administrative agencies claiming that they're merely interpreting laws and making new laws and things like that. I don't know how much institutional leapfrogging is involved in in environmental regulation, but I imagine that you'd find some there as well. But I think it is unique to civil rights. And for the simple reason that when you're dealing with civil rights, you're dealing with regulators who, number one, believe that they're on the right side of history. And, you know, and they are so resolute in their moral righteousness and, and, the, and, 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 and in the justice of their cause that they are, number one, kind of willing to ignore trade-offs and costs. I mean, this is very visible in the case of athletics under Title IX, but I'd, I'd argue it's equally visible in the case of, of transgender regulation. Any question of costs and trade-offs is just immediately disregarded because you're dealing with, with fundamental human rights here. So, you know, considering costs is, is, is in itself unjust. And number two, you know, there's kind of this perverse dynamic, though understandable in light of our history, that the more opposition these regulatory decisions generate, the more entrenched and self-righteous the regulators become, the, the more difficult it becomes to dislodge them from their, from their opinions, right? Because the whole premise of civil rights is counter-majoritarian. So, so you know, if you take those two dynamics, today, those two key facts together, yeah. like the moral certitude, especially in the face of, of majorities on the one hand, and on the other hand, the absolute unwillingness to consider costs, trade-offs, unintended consequences, that lends itself to institutional leapfrogging for the simple reason that institutional leapfrogging is a very, very good way to conceal costs and trade-offs, to conceal innovation. Right. So it seems to me quite logical that, that this would happen, especially in the area of civil rights. Right. One one thing you've, you've discussed in some of your work is how the discourse around gay conversion therapy has kind of been reappropriated in the trans context where, you know, there, there's lots of clinicians who are not, or most people would not consider them anti-trans, but who counsel this thing called watchful waiting, which means you wait for the kid to see if they grow out of their gender dysphoria, because most do. And then, and then the idea is if they don't, well, then they can transition, but like, let's give it some time. And now there's this whole move to argue that that, itself is a form of conversion therapy. And I think, it, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, the the move there is to cite studies that show that gay conversion therapy doesn't work and to then infer from those studies and therefore the trans conversion therapy, aka watchful waiting, won't work. Of course, the kids will remain trans, even though that's not actually true. And these are in fact not at all analogous processes. Right. Yes, I think you you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, it's they are they're doing two things. One is inferring from studies done on homosexuality, where you know the, the evidence does show that it's extremely difficult to impossible to change sexual orientation, and they're inferring from that to to cross gender identification, gender dysphoria, however you want to describe it, with no evidentiary basis whatsoever. But the other thing that they're doing, and this is equally important, is ignoring. All of the studies that we have so far, which admittedly are not very many and are not very rigorous because of just the nature of, of, the, of the kind of study that, that's being done. Nevertheless, we have kind of 11 studies so far 
that show quite conclusively that if you just leave these kids alone, the vast majority of them will desist, will come to feel comfortable in their bodies, will abandon their cross-gender identification. In fact, most of them will turn out to be gay and lesbian. And that makes sense because, you know, as a lot of gay rights advocates have, have argued for a long time, one of the features of growing up gay in a, in a culture that's not always approving and tolerant of homosexuality is that you learn to repress it. You learn to internalize the hostility around you. And you learn, for example, that because only, you know, the only girls can be attracted to boys. Therefore, if I'm attracted to boy to another boy, maybe I'm a girl. So, so, so it's, it's those two things operating in tandem, right? The, the, the total mischaracterization of research and, and the false inference from it on sexuality but also the total omission of the studies that we have so far. And, you know, that's important because if you just think about the term conversion therapy, you know, the vast majority of, of kids who identify as trans will naturally, quote unquote, convert back to being non-trans. But that's not the case with gay and lesbian kids. You know, they're not going to convert naturally, spontaneously on their own to heterosexuality. And this is, you know, this is really important because the medical organizations that have become the, the main reference point for policymakers, right? When federal judges, policymakers in the Office for Civil Rights and the Department of Health and Human Services, when they want to argue that we need gender-affirming care, that any effort by a Republican state to try to peel back gender-affirming care, that, that, that any of these policies are always justified in reference to, so to speak, most medical organizations and what they've said over the past few years. And you can look at the policy statement by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is just an egregious distortion of available research. But that's become the accepted wisdom among medical associations, and medical associations are the ones that policymakers cite when making policy. I mean, I also, I also think something here that's easy to miss is that the question is policy and it's not discretion, right? And that, that's, I think, another characteristic of civil rights, that there, there's a sense that because you can't talk about trade-offs and, and, and it's all absolute, there has to be a kind of one-size-fits-all approach to something like bathrooms. And I think we've discussed this on the show before, but you, know, you just might think that some of these policy areas just, just do not yield themselves, lend themselves to a kind of one size fits all approach, right? Like the kid, I mean, I mean, well, so here's actually something I want to kind of maybe push on a little, because I do think it's an example people bring up is, okay, so like, yeah, the, the, there are the boys who will, you know, just say that they're trans to like get a peek at girls. Obviously, teenage boys are going to do that. Yeah. But, but right, what happens if, I mean, maybe take it out of the child context, but like, say someone has physically transitioned, they've been on hormones for like 10 years, they've gotten the surgery, whatever, they present as the gender they identify as. I mean, you wouldn't know they were trans by looking at them. I mean, I think a lot of people want to say, well, that person should probably be able to use their bathroom, right? You know, and the issue, it seems to me, is that like, that's, that's sensible, but it's very hard to actually write a law or come up with a policy that's going to maybe account for that, like let that guy use the bathroom, but not then be taken advantage of by like the, the, you know, obnoxious teenage boys, right? It's, it's very hard. It's very hard to come up with a rule beyond, I know it when I see it. We yeah. talked about this with Michael Biggs as well. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious what you sort of make of that, yeah. how policymakers should like address that issue. That's a very interesting question. I mean, look, I think at the, at the, at the background of this question is uh, the, the deterioration of social trust in a variety of Western societies, and especially here, because yes, if we had a system of social trust, you know, think about how something like this would play out in a small community where everybody knew each other and, you know, there were kind of strong incentives to behave appropriately and to never abuse the trust of other people. You know, in that kind of situation, you don't need as many rules and regulations. But as society becomes more complex, more diverse, more multicultural, people more tolerant of, of different viewpoints, you need more rules and regulations. And so you can't rely on social trust as much. So that's kind of in the background of this. Mm -hmm. Let me say a couple of words about discretion, because the question of discretion, I think, is front and center anytime you're talking about regulation. 
to some extent, and I'm going to keep this in the area of, of education for the moment, to some extent, a lot of this stuff going on with transgender, transgender regulation is downstream from you know the original civil rights cause, which was, of course, racial, had to do with desegregation, desegregating schools. And there, you know, there was legitimate mistrust in states and in school districts because they they wanted segregation, you know, segregation now, segregation forever. And they were going to, they were hell bent on defending it at any cost. So, so the distrust in local discretion, and I don't just mean the discretion of, of, uh, of states, I mean, the discretion of school boards and even school administrators was entirely deserved, right? And that tended to create a new legal culture. You had a whole generation of lawyers brought up in the law schools on the basis of this kind of studied, justified distrust in local discretion. And it became a lot easier to persuade that generation of lawyers that this is that this new issue, the trans issue, is just an extension of the same fundamental problem. Right? We cannot trust school administrators to make these distinctions, these fine distinctions. And of course, you have a whole kind of ecosystem of advocacy organizations, the ACLU, Lambda Legal, HRC, Listen, whose entire raison d'etre, if I could put it that way, is to be kind of a constant watchdog on these institutions to make sure that they never have unmitigated discretion. So, so that's the first point I'd make about discretion, that a lot of this is deserved, but it's, but, but it's been stretched so thin through the analogy mm. of the case that it becomes implausible at, at some point. The second point that I would make is if you actually look at the internal dynamics of schools, school districts, and I'm referring both to kind of school boards where, where parents and citizens are involved, but also to the internal dynamics of schools and teacher unions, there's quite a bit of disagreement there over how, what to do on the LGBT issue and especially the trans issue. And you have, you know, kind of these kind of fierce ad activists, trans activists who are teachers, administrators who really want aggressive and highly unpopular policies, but they know they don't have the political capital to get them through in kind of a transparent democratic way. And, you know, the best way for them to be able to get to have their cake and eat it too, meaning to get their policy, but not have to brave the political process is to, is to, to so to speak, to be forced to do what they would want to do anyway. And, and civil rights regulation is a very, very good way for them to do that because they can, they can, they, you have like a trans activist in Gloucester County who says, look, you know, says to parents who are concerned about the new bathroom policy, has to say, look, I wouldn't want to do this because I, I, I hear you, all your complaints and I understand all of your worries, but I'm being forced to, I have no choice. The federal government is, yeah. so, right. So, so sometimes Sometimes the people who we think want as much discretion as possible, meaning that the administrators on the ground actually want their discretion curtailed in order to achieve their, their goals without mm. the risks that come with it. And then the third point that I would say is civil rights regulation, even though it treats questions of trade-offs and costs and therefore of discretion, because discretion is where you weigh trade-offs and costs, it treats those questions as in theory and principle kind of beyond the scope. Often these questions inevitably come in through the back door. So let me give an example of what I mean by that. When the Trump administration came into office in 2017, one of its first actions was to rescind the Dear Colleague letter of the Obama administration on trans students. But by that point, a number of federal courts basically said, you know what, we agree with what the Obama administration was doing here, and we're going to interpret Title IX de novo in the same direction, meaning here, finally, you get federal courts putting their own personal imprimatur on the new interpretation rather than claiming merely to defer to OCR. And the first court to do this was the Seventh Circuit in a case called Whitaker v. Kenosha. And that case, you know, it was a very typical trans student bathroom case where the school district said, look, if we, if we treat students based on gender identity, we have no way to, to stop, you know, students from, from abusing the policy. You know, how can we possibly defer blindly to how students self-identify? We have to have some kind of gatekeeping here, but you're telling us that any form of gatekeeping is quote unquote stereotyping. So what do you propose that we do? And in response, the Seventh Circuit in a very interesting kind of one sentence throwaway said, we're not telling you that you just have to defer to any old student here. The plaintiff in this case has a quote, medically diagnosed and documented condition, namely gender dysphoria. So notice what the court did here. It 
constrained the discretion of the school district and basically said, you really only have to say, have to treat as transgender students who have medically diagnosed gender dysphoria. Meaning if you have other students who have a, a trans identity, non-binary, queer, whatever, yeah. and want to use gender fluid, want to use these bathrooms one day, those the other day, the court was saying, for all intents and purposes, as far as the law is concerned, as far as this ruling is concerned, those students don't count as transgender. And this, by the way, I should point out, this drove queer theory and transgender theory scholars right. academy crazy. And it's why I think that it's very misleading to talk about queer theory and gender ideology, because a lot of what's driving the stuff is a kind of new kind of essentialism that really takes medical management and medical gatekeeping is absolutely central. Right. So, I mean, do you, well, I guess that maybe leads into sort of closing question, but so, so how do you think courts are going to deal with non-binary stuff? Cause it seems like the, you know, the activists will not be satisfied with this kind of, you know, neo binary that the courts have kind of set up where it's, it's still the binary, but you can just switch between the two. I, do you have any thoughts on how pressure from the kind of more, I might get in trouble for saying this, exotic parts of the kind of transgender spectrum might, you know, react to stuff like this? Do you, yeah, like what, how is this going to work? Or, or are those people going to just be out of luck because the law is so rooted in kind of the sexual binary from the start with Title IX that any trans identity that is not kind of mappable onto that binary is just not going to be recognizable by the courts. Yes. So let me take the opportunity of this question to kind of circle back to my original point of, of, of the absolute essential importance of institutions to understanding what's been going on here. One of the unique features of courts, in fact, what distinguishes courts from, from legislatures and to some extent bureaucracies, federal agencies, is the fact that when judges make policies, they have to go to extremes in order to deny that they're doing anything new, right? Because mm -hmm. judges are supposed to apply law, not make law. And that incentive structure, once you understand it, explains why lawyers lie all the time. They're constantly telling judges to change law, but, but, but under the guise of merely applying it. And it explains why judges sometimes don't even see their own innovations because it's so important to them to present them as mere continuations. Okay, so how is that relevant to this question that you raised? If you look at the federal lawsuits that have happened so far, groups like the ACLU have appointed experts, medical experts, who have testified in court and told federal judges all of this stuff on gender fluidity, non-binary, none of this has any medical, clinical, or scientific basis. The only thing that we're talking about, they are, they say, is gender dysphoria, cross-gender identification. And, you know, so you have Dr. Randy Etner in the Gloucester lawsuit said, when it comes to gender, I'm quoting here, when it comes to gender, there are two and only two options, male and female. Now, if you think about it philosophically, that makes absolutely no sense, because if gender, meaning maleness and femaleness, have nothing to do with the body, why on earth would there only be two options? The only reason we have two categories of sex is because of reproductive purposes, functions, of which there are only two. So the, the, the argument was internally just completely self-contradictory, but it didn't matter because it, it works, the, the court bought it. But why, why were they making these claims? Why would trans act activist groups not just say, yes, there's a spectrum of gender identities? I mean, they say this in training materials all the time. Why not say in federal court? Well, the answer is because then judges would start to realize that they're really changing policy. They're really changing social reality. Whereas under the present regime, judges have been convinced that all they're doing is just forcing schools to be consistent. Because according to the argument of the ACLU, the only thing that makes anybody male or female is gender identity. So this is a universal trait that we all have. We all have a gender identity and that gender identity is either male or female. And in most of us, it just happens to coincide with, with uh, our bodies, right? So under this theory, which is internally contradictory, courts can be persuaded that they're not changing anything, but merely forcing schools to be more consistent in allowing mm -hmm. male identified students to use the boys' room and female identified students to use the girls' room. So that's a very long-winded way of getting at your question. So I guess one answer that I would give is to the extent that 
you, you could find an entrepreneurial judge that's willing to take more political risks. Maybe they will issue a ruling on non-binary students and gender fluid students and stuff like that. But of course, in that case, you know, the only logical conclusion is desexed. I'm not even saying unisex, right? Desexed bathrooms for everyone. Because if you recognize that gender is a spectrum, that there's non-binary, asexual, pansexual, all these kinds of categories, there's no limiting principle. There's no reason why we should have two bathrooms. There should be either one bathroom for every gender, which means an infinite number of bathrooms, or just bathrooms that anybody can use. And if you look at kind of what scholars in critical theory are saying, people like Susan Stryker, who's a kind of a prominent figure in transgender studies, they say this explicitly. They say it makes no logical sense to separate bathrooms by gender identity because that construction assumes that there's a connection between identity and the body. So I, I think we want to move to, to closing thoughts in a minute, but I want, to, I want to wrap up with a prognostication question. It seems to me like the process that we've been talking about the past 40 minutes uh, is playing out, in, in my view, is playing out for several decades, sort of incorporated various groups, have seen their rights expanded, Usually under the same logic, you know, I even see, I see specifically a continuity between the fight over transgender rights now and the fight over gay rights, same-sex marriage in particular, 10 years ago, that many of the same tools are used, that many of the same sort of metaphors, theoretical approaches are used. So what I really want to ask you concretely is like, what's the next frontier after <laughs> trans? What what comes after that? What is the next thing? I have a couple of thoughts on this. I'm curious about your take and then we'll run to, to including thoughts. Well, I, I do actually want to hear your take. I mean, my, my very brief take is this is an ever-evolving frontier. So, I mean, the next frontier is still the same frontier when it comes to trans rights. I just don't know. I don't see where else it could go. The, the whole, I think that the, the fundamental purpose of, of transgenderism is to elevate subjectivity as such to the status of unassailable fact. So once you do that, anything becomes possible. This is, this is you could say this is the end of civil rights history, where 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 you just get to the point where ultimately the civil rights just collapse into everyone has the right to their own subjectivity, and there's just no limit, and it goes crazy. Sure, I, 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 I'm, I'm I'm being a little. Political. No, no, I, I think no, I think I think you're 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 uh, you're identifying a real trend here. But of course, the problem is that that we don't have a right to our subjectivity because we have to affirm others, meaning we have to agree with their subjectivity. So you get kind of this clash of you know this clash of wills, right. where I paradoxically the people who are going to win, the groups that are going to come out on top in the regulatory, policy, political process, are precisely the groups that are the groups that are the most powerful the least oppressed. I mean, that's the ultimate paradox here, right? Is that if it's all just kind of lived, one lived experience against the other, by definition, the lived experience that's going to come out on top from a political regulatory perspective is the one that has the best access to power. But it's going to do so by claiming that it's the most oppressed. But I, I'm curious to hear where, where you think this is going. What's, uh, what's the next frontier? No, we can, we can, we can, I'll, I'll start that. My 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 hypothesis is that the the dramatic expansion of disability is what comes next. Oh. The, the 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 disability category that exceeds commonly agreed upon. I think we're already seeing this happen. There's a there's a piece in the Times a couple of weeks ago about about associated identity disorder. Sort of, yeah yeah associated identity disorder and the the hearing voices movement. The dramatic expansion validation of a things as disabilities and then b disabilities as not intrinsically harmful, but sort of things society needs to accommodate. That's that's the stake I've been planting in the ground with privately for a couple of weeks. I guess, yeah, I mean, so, you know, and, and, that, and that ties into my thoughts about this whole conversation, which is as something Lior, Lior said that stuck with me is is the sort of, you wrote, you, you said this in substance, so I didn't ask you about this, but you wrote in a city journal piece, quote, civil rights discourse relies on abstract analogies and moral absolutism, it avoids talking about ambiguity and trade-offs on principle treating opposition to desired legal outcomes as rooted in ignorance and bigotry. Scientific inquiry, scientific inquiry, by contrast, calls for self-doubt, skepticism, and genuine openness to being proved wrong. In theory, these are two wholly different enterprises guided by different values and incentives. But I want to zoom in on that first part, which is that you know the, the way in which Americans have adjudicated disputes for the past 60 years has been in the language of rights rather than the language of interests. One, one permits it balancing, the other one does not. And I think it is right that we are seeing that that dynamic play out more and more 
peculiar ways, sort of reaching its own limits. I think there's further can go, which has my, my my first speculation. But but uh, that 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 sort of selection of rights over over interests, I think, explains a lot about where we are. Aaron, do you have do you have sort of closing thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, inspired by your last comment, Charles, I would say what's interesting to me is that I think there's actually a kind of almost increasingly bipartisan recognition in a weird way that rights discourse has gone too far. I say this because there's a book, I've not read it, but it's by uh, Jamal Green, who's a Columbia law professor. And the whole point is that rights-based discourse prevents us from talking about trade-offs. And he's he's coming at it more from a kind of, you know, leftist, like, you know, economic rights prevent us from tackling climate change, for example. But but it's interesting that, you know, it's it's really not just conservatives who have noted that the obsession with rights can have problems. I, I mean, I I would be curious to ask people like Jamal Green, who who make this argument in the kind of economic context, what they think of the social issues. But right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I also I also no. I the other the only other thing I'd say in closing is I, I was taken by what you said earlier, Lear, which is, you know, this this really was not some kind of conscious plan. Right. And in, in this is, I think, a very good example where some of the kind of distinguishing incoherences of what we call gender ideology, the kind of simultaneous, it's all rooted in the brain and the, oh, it's all a social construct. And people say, well, why are you saying both of those things? They don't, that doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, one reason seems to be that that actually tracks like the way that the legal decisions actually shaped up. And so rather than it being that the theory created the incoherent legal decisions, I mean, maybe a better way to think of it is, you know, judges acting in good faith, they're like, ah, we don't know what to do. So they just kind of made incoherent legal decisions. And then kind of from those, you you end up right with a totally incoherent ideology, but the, but it's ultimately kind of reducible and, and traceable back to just sort of the mundane attempts to sort out social reality by court. I think that is an important and interesting point. So I guess with, with that, we like to offer recommendations at the end. So I guess to start, Charles, what's your recommendation? Yeah, I'm I'm brain dead and sick this week. Well, COVID again, as I said earlier. So my my as no, normally I'd have a big intellectual recommendation, but instead I'm sitting on my butt watching dumb TV because that's what I have the brain power for. I've been rewatching my favorite food slash cooking show of all time, the Viceland show. Fuck That's Delicious, presented by rapper, food connoisseur, Action Bronson. What I love about the show is that it evinces, like, just anytime its protagonist eats something, it's like he's never eaten anything that good in his entire life. That's sort of the the, the kind of joy that I aspire to. So I recommend the show. It's not it's not the most intellectual recommendation, but it's still good. Aaron, do you have do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, I have another TV show. So it's this mini series on Disney Plus, Obi Wan Kenobi, which is like set between Episode Three and Episode Four of Star Wars. But the reason I recommend it today is because you know Star Wars is it's it's a show movie that involves laser swords and magic and all sorts of other things. But in this particular instance of it, what may be the most unrealistic part is that the young Princess Leia in this movie, or in the, in the mini show, she she is like a total tomboy, and that's like very clear in the in the show. But she's a tomboy, right? There's no there's no she 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 kind of behaves like a boy and gets like chided by her parents for like not behaving like a princess. But she still identifies as a girl, and the parents in this magical Star Wars universe don't seem to be questioning her gender identity. I found this interesting and kind of funny given the times. And also you should watch it because there's like cool lightsaber fights. That's the main reason. But Lior, Lior, do you have your recommendation for listeners? Perhaps one that's more highbrow than either whatever I recommended. Well, I guess I'd have a negative rec- recommendation, which is be careful of stranger things because Kate Moss will not leave your head for a good couple of weeks afterwards. Okay, noted. Okay, good to know. Noted. If you know what I'm talking about, I, I hope it stays that way. I lost, I lost the, I lost attention after the first season. So, <laughs> well, good. Thank you, Lior, for joining us and for offering your insight.
Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, your colleague letters, et cetera, that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. Bye.